This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 125, July the 9th, 1986. This evening, I'd like to discuss something that is in part an answer to a question one of you, Gene Newman, asked about the implications of sin in the political sphere. I've touched on this before. I want to deal with it again. I want to discuss it in connection with a book written by historian Roger Howell, H-O-W-E-L-L, entitled simply Cromwell. This book is out of print. It was published in 1977 and to my knowledge has not been reprinted. There are better books on Cromwell. There are quite a number that have been written by very brilliant historians, and I've read them and enjoyed them some far more than this one. But this one is excellent because of a point that I'm going to come to uh, shortly. One of the things we need to recognize as we approach Cromwell is that here was a man who was by the circumstances of his time forced into a role that he did not willingly take. There was a crisis in the nation. He seriously considered leaving England and coming to the colonies. However, little by little, his intelligence, his grasp of affairs, his speaking and acting brought him to the forefront of the struggle between Parliament and the King. The King, of course, was Charles I. Charles was a thoroughgoing scoundrel. Such an opinion is not popular among historians, but the point is that not only was Charles I a man whose word could not be trusted because he believed himself to be above the law and above keeping truth, keeping his word to any subordinate. On top of that, he was a common thief. He seized the gold in the Tower of London, which was held in trust for the London merchants and goldsmiths. This was one of his many acts of contempt for any of the properties and rights of others. Cromwell, at first had hopes that the king could be brought to reason. But by strong opposition, reasoning, by defeating the king when he went to war against his own people, and by a number of other means, the king could be persuaded to live under the law, that he could be persuaded to be a man of integrity. That was Cromwell's first great disillusion. The king could not be trusted. The fact was that the king was a sinner. As a king, he felt very much above and beyond the law. The kind of opinion he held was 
that expressed later by Louis the Fourteenth of France, quoting from Absolutism and Enlightenment, 1660 to 1789, by R. W. Harris. This is what Louis the Fourteenth said. As the king is of rank superior to all other men, he sees things more perfectly than they do, and he ought to trust rather to the inner light than to information which reaches him from outside. Occupying, so to speak, the place of God, we seem to be sharers of his knowledge as well as of his authority." Louis XIV's opinion of himself was shared by other kings, no less by Charles I. Notice what Louis XIV said, a king is superior to all other men. Moreover, that he sees things more perfectly than anyone else. So he should trust his own inner light than that of any of the wisdom or information given to him by anyone else. That he shares the knowledge of God as well as the authority of God. Very presumptive. Well, Cromwell's first great disillusionment was his hope that the king could be brought to reason, that he could be brought to common sense and rule as a godly king. Charles I was a sinner. As a sinner, he had no desire to surrender his imagined prerogatives and to put himself under any law, any law of God or man. Then next, Cromwell found that as he turned to Parliament, the voice of the people, these failed him. The voices of the people as expressed in Parliament was one of confusion. And Parliament then was restricted in the kind of suffrage that existed. So it was what was described as the better sort of men who could vote and who were in Parliament. And Parliament proved to be notoriously petty. As a matter of fact, the people who should have been the most able in Parliament were the most unreasonable, the Presbyterian Party. They wanted not the law of God, but the will of the Presbyterians, and they did incalculable harm. Earlier, Archbishop Laud of the Church of England, the Episcopal Bishop, had wrought great harm by viewing England and his duty as archbishop only in terms of what he thought was best for the church and king. And now the Presbyterian party had the same approach. Cromwell looked to the people, the people who were not represented. And, of course, we have more than a few historians, abler than Mr. Howell, who have erred greatly here in idealizing what the people were. One of these, of course, is the very remarkable and superior 
historian Christopher Hill. Having for some time been more or less of Marxist, Christopher Hill was very prone to this error. As a result, he felt that Cromwell's failure was that he ceased to listen to the people. But the people, the common people, had all kinds of impossible demands. Demands that could not even remotely be realized, and if realized would have been disastrous. They were utopian, and they were rationalistic. The radical wing of the Puritans, if they could even be called Puritans, was hardly given to common sense, even though they sometimes unduly exalted reason. Cromwell looked to the army. One of the most remarkable documents is Puritanism and Liberty, edited by Wodehouse, which uh, is simply the transcript of the army debates. The men in the army debating from the standpoint of varying forms of Christian faith and varying forms and degrees of political faith, what was to be the future political settlement of England? Very remarkable document. But the army failed Cromwell also. So finally, to make a long and painful story short, Cromwell overthrew a great tyranny. In the process, he had found that that tyrant, the king, could not be depended on, and there was no hope in him. There was no hope in the people. There was no hope in Parliament and there was no hope in the army. And it meant, finally, that Cromwell, who was trying to look for a solution to the problems of the country, had to rule by himself. And then there was no one to pass the rule on to. This was a great tragedy. This tells us a great deal, too, about our world. We have many people who idealize our American past and Constitution, which is not to say that I want to detract from either. But the point is, no document can guarantee the future of man. If man is a sinner, the political implications of his sin will destroy any system of government, any Constitution, anything that you can devise, because sin will level all things. As a result, we need to learn by the Puritan Commonwealth what happens. People were ready to work with Cromwell up to a point. Then they divided into two camps, those who did nothing, figuring now that they had won, all their problems were solved, and it was up to Cromwell to do what needed to be done. The other side was 
full of greedy men, each out to realize their own dream, each out to force their idea what constituted a true state upon the people of England. Well, Cromwell died, and not knowing what to do, they invited back the Stuart dynasty, and Charles II took the throne, a reprobate, a man who very quickly was the puppet of Louis XIV and secretly in the pay of Louis XIV, a traitor to his own country, selling out its interests at every turn. Under Cromwell, England had been a tremendous world power. Under Charles II, it sank to a shameful and pitiable estate. Charles II was more interested in being subsidized to have his freedom to sin at will than to do anything constructive to alleviate the problems of the kingdom. However, Cromwell's years were not in vain. What happened was this. Cromwell had destroyed the divine right of kings. He had destroyed autocracy. He had destroyed an oppressive order. And as a result, it was impossible for Charles II, had he so desired, to go back to the regime of his father. The result in time was, in 28 years, the glorious revolution of 1688. It meant that Parliament came to the rule, not that it ruled well, but it meant there was some progress, that the old order was gone and England was changing. No one gave Cromwell the credit, but by his destruction of the old order, he prepared the way for something else in England. But what he did did not die there. I believe a very good case can be made for seeing the American War of Independence as a continuation of the Puritan Commonwealth and of the United States as, in a sense, realizing some of the hopes of Cromwell to a degree. But, of course, we are destroying those beginnings. One interesting sidelight on all of this is a song, a contemptuous song that was used to describe Cromwell. It was a song that had come from a nonsense song sung by Dutch farmers when they were harvesting. And it began with the words, Yanker doodle doodle down. Much later, when the Civil War broke out in England in 1642, the Royalists, who were called Cavaliers, were very much given to rather flamboyant and dashing clothes, whereas they 
called the uh, party of parliament, the Puritans, roundheads because of their short, uh, closely cropped hair and their plain clothing. They also poked fun at Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell came from the minor gentry, and they ridiculed him as being pretentious, which he was not, and as trying to pass as a cavalier, which he never did, by singing a new version of the Yanker Doodle Doodle Down song that began like this. Yankee Doodle came to town upon a Kentish pony. He stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. The word macaroni had referenced the Cavalier's Italian-style clothing and its flamboyance. And their idea was that Cromwell would like to be a Cavalier in appearance, but never would be. Well, of course, Cromwell never sought to be that. Now, this song had an interesting revival some years later. When the French and Indian War broke out in the colonies, a British Army surgeon who was stationed in New York thought the shabbily dressed uh, colonial troops who were fighting alongside the British were quite ridiculous. The idea that they thought of themselves as soldiers, as men who could fight alongside of the British, amused him. And so he wrote a song to ridicule them, and he took the anti-Cromwell song, Yankee Doodle came to town upon a Kentish pony, and stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni and applied it to the colonial troops. And the British soldiers loved it. The interesting thing is, in action, the colonials were the better soldiers by far. They were used to uh, fighting on American soil, fighting Indians, and hiding behind trees and uh, getting out of the way of the enemy's gunfire. The British troops were used to marching in uh, red coats, all in a line, and naturally the Indians had no trouble mowing them down. Uh, incidentally, that's how Washington distinguished himself in the French and Indian War because he simply adapted the Indian-style warfare to the troops he commanded. Uh, the British officers regarded such maneuvers as cowardly, as disgusting and shameful for a gentleman to adopt. There was no question they worked. Incidentally, the French and Indian War did not help British and American relationships because the British troops were all contemptuous of Puritanism and they despised all the Americans, North and South, as Puritans. 
They ridiculed them. They were continually trying to debauch the American girls. And the result was there was a great deal of resentment towards British troops. This paved the way for the War of Independence. There was a sentiment among a great many because there were demonstrations against the British before the French and Indian War was over, and there were acts of violence between the British and the Americans. Well, with the War of Independence, the British again used this to ridicule the colonials. But the colonials in April of 1975 made the Yankee Doodle their fight song. And the result was it became immensely popular. It deserves more of a place in American history and American uh, singing than it has ever gained. Before the war was over, it was their favorite song, the Colonial's favorite song. When the fighting ended in October 1781 with the British surrender at Yorktown, the American troops lined up in two columns. On the one side, their French allies. On the other, the Americans. And the British had to march between them. And General Lafayette, who knew what had been going on, ordered the band to play Yankee Doodle. This infuriated the British. Quite an interesting story. But there was more of Cromwell on the American War of Independence than historians generally write about. Very important aspect of our history. Well... On to something else now. I referred to R.W. Harris, Absolutism and Enlightenment, 1660-1789. Very interesting book, published in 1964. A great deal in it that I would rather not go into now. Perhaps on some other occasion I would like to use it. But I'd like to refer to one citation by uh, Dr. Harris from Montesquieu. Montesquieu said, and I quote, Law in general is human reason. Unquote. Law in general is human reason. Very interesting and very important statement because this has implications for the subject that I uh, spoke of earlier that Gene Newman asked me to talk about, implications of sin in the political sphere. If you see reason as somehow above and beyond man's sin, and the logic of human reason producing or expressing law you are in trouble. Because what you have said is that law is what 
fallen man devises. And law then becomes what it has become in our day. The humanistic philosophers of law have been mainly two schools in the modern era. Those who have said that law is the expression of logic, following Montesquieu, that the human mind, as it comes to a logical conclusion, comes to an awareness of fundamental law, and it is reason that formulates and expresses law. Then with John Dewey, of course, law became experience. In either case, what happened was that humanistic men took an aspect of man, a fallen creature, and said that law was derived from that sphere. Well, what happens then is that sin is enthroned and becomes the law of the day. We see this very clearly today in every country, including right here in our country. Law is the expression today of the sin that is in Congress and in the Supreme Court. They are giving expression to their sin. Whether they call the law logic or experience, the end result is the same. Sin has triumphed. And the net result is that our society, precisely as it seeks to improve itself through the lawmaking bodies, goes downhill more and more, becomes less and less capable of coming to grips with reality or solving anything. And the crisis of our time is a manufactured crisis by the elements that are supposed to produce law, that are supposed to serve the law. Most people have, without understanding the issues that I've just described, sensed this to some degree because what you find all around is a growing suspicion of politicians, a growing suspicion of lawyers, so that you can hear all kinds of jokes and ugly comments about lawyers. And, of course, the same is very true of judges. I've heard people say, that, by the way, that all judges should be shot this statement in anger as they read the papers. Well, these people, without going into the reasoning behind the law, have instinctively recognized that the very agencies that should be serving law are the most anarchistic with respect to the law, and the results are deadly for our society. They are destructive of everything in our history. And they are leading us steadily into a growing degeneracy and decadence. Otto Scott has defined decadence as the inability of a people to defend themselves. 
And increasingly, we and other countries are losing the ability to defend ourselves. We have become decadent. And the roots of this are in our political sphere, in the lawmaking sphere, because we have ceased to move in terms of God's law, and we are seeing human reason as the source of law. And the lawmaker uh, somehow rising above everything that man, the sinner, fallen man is in his capacity as a man who expresses law as either the reason inherent in man or the logic and experience of the past. Now to continue... Not too long ago, I discussed briefly, much too briefly, a book by Charles Murray, Losing Ground, American Social Policy, 1950 to 1980, published in 1984 by Basic Books, and I believe still in print. Now the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., has put out a little paperback, Gaining Ground, New Approaches to Poverty and Dependency, with a portion of Murray's book and essays by Robert Royal, Glenn C. Lowry, Michael Novak, and Peter L. Berger. This little book is obtainable from Ethics and Public Policy Center, 103015 Street Northwest. Washington, D.C., 20005. And the price I'm not sure of, but uh, yes, $4. Now, one of the things that I'd like to cite again from Murray's book before going on to this book is a statement he made therein as he dealt with the education of the disadvantaged, of minority groups in this country. He made a very important point that I think is essential for us to know because in this day of so many spoiled children, it applies not only to disadvantaged students but to everyone. Let me quote Murray. The central failing is that the system does not teach disadvantaged students who see permanent failure all around them how to fail. For students who are growing up expecting whatever their dreams may be ultimately to be a failure, with failure writ large, The first essential contravening lesson is that failure can come in small digestible packages. Failure can be dealt with. It can be absorbed, analyzed, and converted to an asset, unquote. This is a very important point. Today we don't even give failing grades because we don't like to see people fail under any circumstances. One of the things I learned very, very quickly years ago when I was on an Indian reservation was that 
there was a reason why the Indians, uh, by the time they were in their teens, if not earlier, were alcoholics. It was their child training. You never heard an Indian child cry or an Indian baby cry. In the eight and a half years I was among them, I never heard a baby cry. Well, that's unusual. I would preach at the mission with a great number of babies in the congregation. I never heard one cry. The reason was simply this. Whenever a baby showed any sign of displeasure, the baby was immediately given the breast by the mother and rocked and held so that it never had to cry. When the child became a toddler, again he was never frustrated. The Indians loved their children greatly, but with a kind of love that was ultimately destructive. If an Indian child of five or six wanted to get into a game with children of eight, nine, or ten, he was allowed to play with them. Of course, not being up to their performance, it quickly ended the game. But nobody seemed to mind. No one objected because it was unthinkable of them. It was heartless. It was cruel to deprive a child. Well, the net result of all of this was that the minute these children began to get a little older as they approached their teens... And as they found that life can be frustrating, they couldn't take it. They became alcoholics very quickly. They had to find refuge in a dream world. And of course, later on with peyote, a drug, which was taken religiously. Well, this is what we're seeing in our culture today. After the war, I had a meeting in New York with uh, some graduate students. Uh, I believe it was about the year the war ended. And I went into this and I said, it is this type of training that has destroyed the Indians and if we get it here in this country this same kind of indulgence towards children, it will destroy our country. Well, of course, the Depression children decided to become indulgent parents. They didn't want their children to be deprived the way they had been deprived. And the result was we created a generation, more than one generation, that cannot be frustrated. And because the world is frustrating, they've gone into liquor, they've gone into pot, they've gone into heroin, they've gone into opium, they've gone into LSD, they've gone into the sexual revolution. Every kind of trip imaginable they're taking because they cannot take a world of frustration. They cannot face reality. So... We have a problem today, and it isn't going to go away 
either on the Indian Reservation where the problem still continues or in our culture at large. On the Indian Reservation, the reservation where I was, today they have the highest rate of suicide in the United States. We're getting youth suicide increasingly all across the country because they cannot take the simplest frustrations. So, Murray's point is excellent, not only for the disadvantaged or the minority groups, but for all. We need an education that enables people to learn how to fail and to realize that failure can be absorbed, analyzed, and converted into an asset. Now to turn to uh, something by one of the commentators on uh, Murray's book, In Gaining Ground. I'd like to quote from uh, Glenn C. Lowry, The Quandary of the Black Community is the title of his essay. And I quote, As Orlando Patterson has brilliantly argued, fault and responsibility must not be presumed to go hand in hand. It must, uh, it is absolutely vital that blacks distinguish between the fault which may be attributed to racism as a cause of the black condition and the responsibility for relieving that condition. For no people can be genuinely free so long as they look to others for their deliverance. Unquote. Let me repeat that sentence. For no people can be genuinely free so long as they look to others for their deliverance. An excellent statement. Then... Uh, very briefly, to a book edited by Carol A. Clancy, Pornography, Solutions Through Law, put out by the National Forum Foundation for 1495, and the address is 214 Massachusetts Avenue, Northeast, number 220, Washington, D.C., 20002. It's uh, a small paperback of 150 pages approximately, but there are some excellent things in it. The writers, I think, are predominantly uh, Catholic. And uh, I think this adds, in many cases, to the value of the book. Uh, they are not all Catholic because, for example, Jerry Combe uh, from Liberty Baptist College writes on pornography and public morality and has some excellent, excellent things to say. For example, his point that tradition without truth is not enough. Uh, it's an, a very good point. There is an interesting point made by another writer one which I think really is an overstatement, but uh, 
nonetheless, historically has more than a germ of truth. It is from a keynote address by Senator Jeremiah A. Denton at the conference, because these papers are all conference papers. Quoting the senator, he says, You cannot talk with Father Ritter, founder of Covenant House for Abused and Runaway Youth, an excellent agency, by the way, about what is going on in New York without knowing that something has gone wrong in society. Civilization equals family plus agriculture. And we are destroying the family in the entire Western world. Unquote. Now that statement is a very important one. Civilization equals family plus agriculture. And we are destroying the family in the entire Western world. We could add that we are also destroying agriculture. Life without a good supply of food rapidly means the destruction of civilization. You cannot maintain a civilized society if your food supply is marginal. You cannot maintain a civilized society without a strong family. Historically, people recognized that these two things went together that they were the essentials of civilization, family plus agriculture. But today, we have forgotten this. We have lost our roots, and we think in terms of nonsense. Not too long ago, I was in a state for a conference, a state that has a most distinguished history. It also has a number of major cities, industrial centers in the past. The biggest city in that state has dropped from a million since 1960 to 1980 to half a million. It's expected in another ten years to drop another 50%. It's an old city, a beautiful city a city of magnificent old churches and empty factories. What is the problem? Well, the state is so heavily populated now with urban peoples, with all kinds of uh, environmental ideas, anti-pollution ideas, which are beyond common sense, that they have shut down industry. Industry cannot come into the state. In some instances, because factories stand empty, businesses from other states have thought of moving in because the properties have become so cheap. Very quickly, they decide otherwise. When they encounter the militant hostility of these peoples to any kind of industrial development, not even clean industry. Everything is beneath them. At the same time, how are they trying to revive their major city, which has dropped from a million to almost half a million? Why, they're having all kinds of cultural events to make it again a world center. 
they had a film festival about the time I was there. They've had some foreign ballet and other groups, symphonic groups and so on, as though people are going to move into a major city just for these so-called cultural events where there is no income that can be made. This is the kind of insanity that prevails today all over the world. But the point is well taken by the senator. Family plus agriculture. This is the essence. This is the skeleton upon which a civilization flourishes. Take it away and it collapses. Man shall not live by bread alone, but he can't live without bread. And today, all over the world, agriculture is in process of destruction. Now on to something else. A new book, hardly pleasant reading, but all the same important reading is by Richard Deacon, as in a church deacon, but it is emphatically what Deacon is not. He is a leading writer in the field of espionage and diplomacy. He's a British writer. This book, just published 1985 in England and 1986 in the United States, at 1995, uh, from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in New York is entitled The Cambridge Apostles, A History of Cambridge University's Elite Intellectual Secret Society. Well, this is exactly what it was, a secret society, which began as a Church of England group and for too many years became a society of sodomites who expounded what they called the higher sodomy. Some of these men became Soviet agents within the British government. Others became very, very powerful within the British government. They were, of course, very quickly not only no longer interested in the Church of England, but were also militantly anti-Christian. They read papers regularly. They were the ones to espouse the idea that homosexuality between consenting adults is legal and or should be legal. The papers they read to one another often had to do with preposterous subjects. Uh, G.E. Moore, who is regarded as one of the great English philosophers, was a member, and he was not a great philosopher. And in one of his papers... He made this statement, I quote, In the beginning was matter, and matter begat the devil, and the devil begat God, unquote. 
Bertrand Russell was a member of the society, Wittgenstein, of course a very powerful member was Keynes, whose economics is still with us and destroying the world. Their way of life, of course, was to them a highly noble one. Incidentally, another group was formed to provide, a, I guess, a kind of female counterpart, the Afra-Ben Society, which was named after Mrs. Afra-Ben, a 16th century playwright. Afra-Ben, by the way, in herself is quite a remarkable story. We don't really know too much about her. She wrote some uh, very bawdy plays in the 16th century. She did serve as uh, a spy for at least two countries. She may have come to the Americas. She knew something about it. She wrote uh, about the noble, noble uh, savage very glowingly and justified even their cannibalism. They were innocent children of nature. So a great deal that went into Rousseau and that tradition came from Afra Ben. Well, apparently Afra Ben had lesbian tendencies that... Uh, historians haven't bothered to deal with. At any rate, an Afra-Ben society was also formed at Cambridge. The interesting thing, of course, is these members of the apostles or the higher sodomy group have always preferred to exercise power and authority behind the scenes in the civil service in the diplomatic service or advisory or experimental agencies rather than to take a public part in government. They have loved the behind-the-scenes influence. Incidentally, one of their uh, more important members was Edward Marsh, who very early became a secretary, a private secretary and right-hand man to Winston Churchill, and as such exercised a very, very powerful influence there. One of the early and ostensibly a member during the period of orthodoxy was Hort, H-O-R-T, Fenton John Anthony Hort. But there's a good question as to whether in Hort's day the society was as innocent as uh, Deacon seems to believe. Because Hort was the man who did most of the work in the preparation of the Westcott and Hort uh, uh, version of the uh, Greek New Testament, which supplanted the received text with scholars. There is no question that Hort was a hater of everything that was orthodox, a hatred that extended to the received text, so that perhaps even in the early years, behind the facade of Church of England orthodoxy, the 
society was not what it pretended to be. Let me add that Deacon is not writing critically of the apostles. He goes so far as to say in his uh, conclusion, in the outside world, the influence of members has over the past 40 years been more significant in science, medicine, economics, and technology than in any other fields. Membership of the society may well have encouraged feelings of elitism with some, and what is worse, privileged elitism. Some apostles, such as Harry Johnson, have acknowledged this. As we all suffer from ill effects of counter-elitism in its worst forms today, I should be the last to attack elitism while still condemning privileged elitism. But in the long run, as I hope this book will approve, the cut and thrust of debate and arguments of such societies as the apostles have in very many instances paved the way to better things and justified their existence. So if as an outsider one may raise one's glass to the apostles and may they long continue. (laughs) So much for Deacon's perspective, which, uh, need I assure you, is hardly mine. Well, very briefly to a book published just this year by Good Books in Intercourse, Pennsylvania, Grace H. Kaiser, K-A-I-S-E-R, Dr. Frau. Grace Kaiser is an M.D. who practiced medicine in New Holland, a town in eastern Lancaster County in Pennsylvania for 28 years. She just retired. Her practice was predominantly among the Mennonites and the Amish. And she writes in a kindly way about them as she describes their uh, foibles and their traits. It's a, a lightweight book, but... Very pleasant reading. However, even though Mrs. Kaiser or Dr. Kaiser is apparently a church member, her perspective is not Christian. Because the difference between her and the Amish is very clear. She did deliver many microcephalic children among the Amish. These usually died in a year or so, living sometimes a little beyond that. These were a product of considerable inbreeding among the Amish. In fact, one of her problems was that so many of them had similar names even to having the same middle name as well as the same first and last name that finding out who was having a baby was at times difficult. But as she delivers one microcephalic child and then is present when the child dies, she sees this as a tragedy. And I'm afraid most of us would feel the same way. But she is honest in 
presenting the perspective of these people. They do not see it as such. In fact, as this one microcephalic baby died, they watched me, she writes, examine the lifeless form on Anna Marie's lap. There were no breath sounds, but the heart continued to beat strongly several minutes before hesitating into complete silence. When the chest became noiseless, I folded the blanket gently over the baby's body and nodded to those who shared the watch, a blessing he could go. Now he will finally have peace. He is in a better place. God was good to us. Thank you for not doing anything to give him pain or make him last longer, Grandfather Fisher said in a subdued voice. As I closed the kitchen door softly behind me, Anna Mary still sat with her baby across her knees. Levi sat beside her. I would call Al Furman, the funeral director, from my phone at home. The family would have another hour with their baby before the world of reality intruded on them. Tomorrow or the next day, family and neighbors would gather around a small grave. With sadness, I felt that this would not be the last such infant Anna Mary would rock on her shoulder, unquote. But she failed to see that these people loved every child, and they knew with an absolute certainty these children would, like all the rest, be with them in heaven. I read a book once about the Huterites in the Dakotas, and their attitude is the same. Well, our time is over. Thank you, and God bless you all.